Welcome to Cyanotopia, a podcast celebrating cyanotype and the artists who use cyanotype in their art making. Each episode features a long-form interview with an artist who uses cyanotype in their art making. The artists talk about what they make, why they make it, and how they make their work. My name is Marilyn Krasner, and I make each episode of this podcast. I wanted to make a podcast about cyanotype because I have been having an intense love affair with cyanotype, and I think it's natural when love is still fresh to want to talk about it a lot. My mom died unexpectedly in April 2021. If you've been through a big grief, you might understand my need for distraction, and I am very grateful that I discovered cyanotype a month or so after my mom died. Cyanotype has been my companion during this time, a lifesaver for me, a brain saver, a joy maker. I'm also a mom and I love that I can show my kids that art doesn't have to be stay within the lines perfect. It is beautiful even when it's uncontrolled, messy, and water gets everywhere. And this podcast is my way of honoring cyanotype and a gift to the cyanotype community and the creative community all over the world. Even if you're not using cyanotype, I think the interviews will resonate because the artists I speak to in these episodes are so interesting. If you want to support the artists you hear on this podcast, please refer to the show notes and find out how to buy their art. I've listed their websites and social media information, along with a list of links to artists, books, and websites that they mentioned during their interviews. You can find the show notes for each episode in your podcast app or on my website, www.marilynkrasner.com. That's M-A-R-O-L-Y-N-K-R-A-S-N-E-R.com. And please keep making your art. The world needs your art. And it's okay to make art even when times are really hard because you're a human and really... It's one of the best parts about being a human being, I think. This episode features a conversation with Julia Whitney Barnes. Julia is a phenomenal painter and artist using cyanotype in her practice. And I think you'll enjoy hearing about her surprising and unique projects that she's been working on this year and some cool stuff that she has coming up. She really kind of expands what's possible, I think, with cyanotype, while also keeping the history of the process definitely at the forefront of her work. And I want to say a personal thank you to Julia for being so supportive of this podcast project and suggesting very cool people need to talk to, to share with everyone. So thank you, Julia, and thank you all for listening. Enjoy the episode. I'm Julie Whitney Barnes, and I'm a visual artist. I work in many different mediums. Um, I was born in Vermont and grew up uh, kind of all over New England. I moved to New York City to go to Parsons School of Design and then stayed in New York for almost two decades. And then uh, we moved up to the Hudson Valley about seven years ago. And how long have you been working with cyanotype? 
So I came about cyanotype in the same way that so many people do as a kid at summer camp, just, you know, making the thing where you take some seashells and scissors and whatever else and put them on the piece of paper and kind of watch the magic happen. Um, so that was quite a few decades ago at this point. And then I didn't really think much about it, um, but I'd always worked with a lot of silhouettes in my work. And then about 10 years ago, I started using cyanotype as just a way to like record various silhouettes as research. Um, and then I ended up using the, the cyanotype medium like in combination. So a lot of like paper collage. Um, I was doing a lot of like encaustic works on panel with cyanotype, um, but then still really using oil painting as my primary medium. And then it was probably I don't know, like three or four years ago <clears throat> that the cyanotype kind of uh, superseded the oil painting work. Um, and I really started um, getting into cyanotype as my primary medium. Um, and before then, I had also done a lot of printmaking, so like intaglio works, and I did all like hand-painted intaglios. And so I see those as really being like the thing that was the most precursor to um, my present body of work. I think, you know, I've always loved like process-based work. So for me, like the ceramic sculpture I was doing, like you work and work and you never know quite what you have until that moment where you get to take it out of the kiln and then see that magic. And then for printmaking, you know, you work on the plates forever and ever and ever, and then you print them and you see what you have. And then from there, I would always use that as like a jumping off point. So like for my ceramic sculptures, I would like overglaze many times and then like even like um, combine those with other mediums like wood. I did a lot of like site specific wall paintings and then combined um, the ceramic and wood to those. And then for, um, for the intaglio based works, I would print the base colors in either black or blue and then work into them with many, many layers of like watercolor and wash and ink um, in a rather similar way to what I do now. But with my cyanotype based works, you know, they really have those like deep blue backgrounds for the most part, though I have done some <clears throat> where um, I gave them like either like a toned yellow background or, um, you know, I reversed the process to make the blue um, the like the positive as opposed to the negative. Primarily, what are you working on these days? Um, well, I just finished a three-part exhibition. Um, the whole project is called Planting Utopia, and it was a collaboration I did at the Shaker Heritage Society and the Albany International Airport. And um, the land all um, was the Shaker settlement. It was the first Shaker settlement in the United States. Um, and I just thought it was such an interesting culture. It was the first integrated culture in terms of race in America. Um, it was separated by gender, so men would live in one part and women would live in another part. Um, but I think that they also had very um, forward-thinking views on gender and identity, etc. Um, they never referred to like God as being male in that way. Um, and the religion was founded by a woman. So I think at the time, considering that um, you know, as a woman, your husband basically owned you. The reason why the Shakers, one of the reasons why they were celibate and why they lived apart was just to be able to say each, you know, that the, the, the genders would be um, equal in that way, even though they had their own things that they did, um, that they would have a lot more autonomy than, say, your traditional, like, married couple in the 1700s. Um, so those Shaker works... Um, 
they did all of these um, that are called gift drawings and they were primarily in like the 1840s and 50s. And I became really fascinated with like whatever was going on at that time. So Anna Atkins was making her first cyanotypes in 1843, as we know, um, Sir John Herschel, you know, invented the medium in 1842. Um, and these Shaker gift drawings were being made at the exact same time. So like some of the most influential ones for me were made in 1843, the exact same year. So here you had um, these primarily women, Shaker women creating um, these gift drawings um, at the exact same time across, you know, across a few thousand miles from Anna Atkins um, making her works. So I wanted to kind of find a way to, to be that bridge and bridge these, um, bridge these two things. So um, when people think about shakers, they think about like minimal woodworking or things like that, but that's was just one component. Um, and even with the woodworking, um, they actually did brightly paint um, most of the wood. And then from there, it had been stripped by people after the fact. So in fact, the, the shakers were making very colorful work. Um, so I wanted to kind of combine the color and the history um, the, um, specifically the herb garden that I worked with at the Shaker site, um, was a recreation of the, um, of plants that they knew that the Shakers grew for both medicinal, um, medicinal culinary and textile purposes. And I worked with over 150 plants at that Shaker site to create, um, the full body of work and the body of work in planting utopia is both based on the gift drawings and then all incorporating the plants um, from this modern garden, um, which is all incorporating historic plants um, and the, it's hard to even know where to start to say what the pieces look like. Um, I would say, you know, go onto my website for that, but some of them um, are massive. So 16 foot wide um, combined media works on fabric that were stretched and then um, with like a site responsive frame built right onto the wall um, of a historic 1856 brick building. And then I also made uh, cyanotype works that were then digitized and printed onto vinyl and installed on the exterior of that building. I didn't want to do something that would actually permanently alter the, the building because, you know, we are talking about a 170 year old building. Um, so the vinyl works can be removed. We're hoping that they will still look good and hold up to the elements for at least a year or two, if not longer. Um, and then the interior works because it's not um, climate controlled in any way. Also, we're just going to wait and see, you know, I don't really know um, how they're going to to weather the extreme heat and cold and, you know, birds flying around in there possibly or whatever else. So um, I kind of put them into the public knowing that, you know, they're um, it's it's a bit of an experiment in terms of what happens to them. Um, and then. Other works were um, more of my usual technique of the watercolor gouache and ink on the very thick arches watercolor paper. Um, the first layers of those are cyanotype. Um, and I made um, eight of those that were then photographed and then printed onto, um, onto dye bond, which is like a really thin metal. And then those were installed um, the entryway of the Albany International Airport. And those works will be on view for between three to five years. Um, I'm still figuring out what I want to do with the actual originals of those. Um, I have a few ideas for them and some framing ideas in mind. 
Um, and then there's another exhibition inside of the airport, uh, which is the part pass security. And that's going to be up for six months. It just went up last week. Um, and that also includes like historic components. So um, prints of the Shaker gift drawings, um, images of Anna Atkins um, first book, the um, uh, photographs of British algae, as well as some of Emily Dickinson's herbarium pages um, and um, herbarium pages that I created based on the garden and then um, prints of some of the cyanotypes and uh, works on canvas, uh, which are then also worked into with paint um, at that site. So yeah, and, and we're working on a book now. So the, the book is going to include um, the historic research, uh, the herbarium, um, essays about both the historic works and my work, and then images of the whole project. So that's like the next part and that will be available like at the various sites and then also on my website. Um, I don't know at this point when it's going to actually be published, but we'll see. A few months from now, fingers crossed if everything um, goes well. The book is about the project, um, and it's just a way to be able to have one place that everything can exist. So we're going to um, photograph all of the sites because, you know, when you're doing something that's possibly ephemeral, it's really important just to me to document it in that way. Um, and then like, since part of the show is like past security, just so just so people can kind of understand those components also of what I made and, um, you know, to be able to send the book all around the world to have people like both see that and um, become more familiar with my work, but then also like the, the work that I was so inspired by um, that's still, you know, not very well known now. And I think whenever, you know, if you can have this history of the gift drawings made by rather obscure um, female artists from the 1850s. It's nice to, to be able to shine some light on that. I love that, you know, that coincidence or that connection between the, between Anna Atkins and the, the drawings that you're talking about. Yeah. And you know, the funny thing is I had actually been working on the project for <clears throat> at least like six months before I really started looking at the dates of the gift drawing. So I knew I was working with the plants. I knew I was doing things with cyanotype. And then I like, you know, I'm not an art historian. I'm an artist. So I don't really pay much attention to dates. And then I started really looking at the dates of these works. And I was like, 1843, 1843. And then it would be like, you know, going through and be like, oh, look, this was the exact year Anna Atkins was doing this. Oh, look, here's the exact, uh, another year would be like, you know, 1849, 1846 of all, just all of these works happening simultaneously, but without, you know, the people knowing about it. Have you always worked with plants or is this something that has come about more because of cyanotype? You know, I've always been really inspired by plants. I think just like studying, especially like flowers from all over the world. Um, I, when I lived in New York City, like we had house plants and I would go to both um, the Brooklyn Botanical Garden and the New York Botanical Garden. Um, and every time I would travel, I love just like everywhere I could go, you know, plants, plants, plants. But really like it would be something I would primarily see like in books or video. Um, and I love living in New York, but I was really getting just a yearning to have outdoor space, um, just to be able to like grow things. And I was very happy to live there. And then I was very happy to leave. Um, and 
now the last seven years living in the Hudson Valley has just been so much more direct relationship to growing things. Um, and even though we just have a quarter of an acre, it's like monumental compared to having nothing. Like we had a fire escape that we would like illegally put plants out on in the summertime and the rest of the time just have them inside. Um, so yeah, I think that like just getting to like increase my knowledge about plants. Um, I think I had sort of an average knowledge of like plant species until a few years ago. And I still like, you know, I'm not great. I'm always like downloading various apps to tell me, I'm like, well, what is that? So just the aid of technology to help me, you know, learn more about them. Um, and then kind of the, the flip side of that are the herbariums, because then, you know, it's definitely very low tech um, approach to learning about plants. And I really, I just love the combination of both of them. Um, and creating the, the herbarium and having this like 13 page document that I've been studying for the last like year and a half, all about um, the historic purposes of each plant. So common names, um, the scientific names and everything has um, really increased both like my ability to recognize plants and kind of understand um, in a much more holistic sense what, what the plants can do. Um, and, you know, I still feel like a total novice in that regard, but I, it, it's hard to like recognize growth in oneself versus like, let's say as a parent, like noticing the growth in your children. Um, but I realized I was like, wow, like I've gone through a developmental leap in terms of like my knowledge of plants in the last few years. So that, that has definitely felt good. I, I love just like research sides of things. So I often do projects that will um, delve into the history of something or like a specific site. And I think that like with the, the plants, um, I just like needed I needed a reason to like go through and be like, this green one is this, this other green one is this, this slightly greenish brown one is this, like, you know, whereas like, let's say like a peony or like a poppy, like something that's like a very showy plant. Those were much more um, like interesting to me previously to, to look into. Um, so it took a lot more like discipline and just the motivation of this project to try to like tell the difference and know what like the various leafy green ones were. How has cyanotype helped you tell the story that you were trying to tell with these works and with your work in general? What, one of the things I just love so much about cyanotype is the directness. Um, I used to find with my oil painting, like I would kind of dread the early stages. I'd be like, ugh, like, all right, I have to like get the composition right and I've got to get the scale right. I'm going to do all the underpainting. You know, it could take months to do those parts of them. And then I'd finally be like, okay, now I'm at the point where I can like really start painting because I would use a lot of translucency and then I would have most of the opacity from like under drawings or things like that with my oil paintings. Um, so, you know, you would like to do like a grisaille painting traditionally with oil painting. And instead I was like, okay, well, instead of like a grisaille, I would do the blue underpainting. Um, and I just like love the speed of it. I love the directness. Um, I love like the one-to-one -one scale when you're working with real plants um, and just like the playfulness to it. And that, um, that you can get like, you know, a pretty instant gratification of seeing something. Um, and then, you know, inevitably I'll be like, nope, this one isn't right. Nope, this one's not right. So just being like a really hard editor in terms of like what the imagery, like how it turned out. 
Um, so it just really like helped motivate me to be more prolific and to be able to, um, you know, kind of like feel like I'm collaborating with the plants as opposed to needing to come up with absolutely everything myself. Um, so I really just like love that part of it. Um, and I think even just like being a parent. So, you know, I have two kids, my daughter is almost seven and my son just turned four and you just don't have the same time when you're a parent as like pre-parenthood. Um, so just like to be able to see progress in the studio helps motivate me to keep going. Like when an oil painting would go so painstakingly slow, I'd be like, all right. And like, I'd have all my oil paints out ready to paint thinking that I'd have like, you know, a half a day or something to like go at it. And then I would get interrupted, couldn't keep working. And then would come back like a day later and find my like crusty oil paints and just be so frustrated. Um, so by being able to just like with the cyanotype, like pause part of it, like I do most of my compositions at night when it's dark and, you know, even if I can't, um, for whatever reason, expose them the next day, I just slip them into my flat files and start again, or can like pull them out when I need to. Um, I use sun, but I also have UV set up so I can, you know, be doing something at midnight or I can be doing something during the day um, with the watercolors. I can mix all my colors up and I could come back six months later and just add water and start repainting um, with the exact color that I'd mixed six months ago. So it just works a lot better with my schedule now. Um, and it also just like kind of feeds me artistically in the sense of like, kind of watching that magic moment um, and even being able to like involve my kids. Like, so I'll let my children like help me very carefully, like remove plants from things or like they help me in the garden. Uh, we go through things and like, you know, we'll tell them things like, do you want to like put this plant into a vase or should we press it and have it live forever? And sometimes they get really mad at me for pressing things that they thought were like their special flowers. And other times they're like, you know, mom, mom, like, will you please press this and like help this, help this flower to live forever. Um, so, you know, of course we know that like pressed plants can be very delicate and completely fall apart. Um, but generally speaking, the pressed species will, uh, you know, be able to maintain that look for so much longer, you know, than a fresh flower. I'm really interested in how you, your process with the pressing the flowers, like I've seen some of the microwave stuff that you've put up. Do you have anything that you've discovered for yourself that works really well? And just what, what is that process of picking to pressing to storage as well? Right. Oh God. My, my studio is just, it's chaos. It's always like, I'm like, no one turn a fan on because there's flowers around. Um, it's just like, the many layers of having things in process. Um, we actually like bought a separate microwave to press plants in because like I was just constantly like commandeering like all of the family kitchen to do things. Um, and the, I love the pressing because it's like the first opportunity to like interact and collaborate with the actual plants. So um, with a microwave pressing, like I will hold the plants in a certain position and then like push the layers of cotton and felt over top of them, stick them in for 30 seconds, um, take them back out, nudge the plants another time, put it in for another 30 seconds, take it back out, 
position again. So like just really being able to say, okay, this is the exact spot I want this petal in, or if I want, um, you know, a certain leaf in and go from there. Um, it also is very helpful for like the super wet plants because those will tend to like mold in a flower press unless you really um, check on them frequently. So with a microwave, you know, like I'll, I'll often like have to microwave them over like two or three days if they're really wet, just to be able to like um, let the press cool down. Um, but I use a combination of both the microwave press and I use the microfloor. Um, even the biggest one though still is not that large. So I'll like cut the plants up and then maybe like glue them back together after I've pressed them. Um, other times, like I have like big wooden presses and I press things in there. Um, I also just have like random sheets of like cardboard all over and I'm like, you know, pressing things and putting books on top of them if they're really big. Uh, and things are like in various stages and I will constantly come upon like a flower that I've like tucked into cardboard and put underneath something and forgotten about it. And I'm like about to throw the cardboard across like into my cardboard scraps and then realize I have like a super fragile flower in there that I pressed a year ago and have a, you know, a moment of panic where I'm like, oh no, I think I've just ruined this thing I spent a year pressing. Um, but, but usually I try to like you know, go throughout my studio knowing there's like these little like little flower surprises tucked into like every corner of my studio. So the whole pressing process and like the drying process with the microwave and what you were talking about, um, positioning the flower in a specific way, like that's a that's a whole artistic practice just within itself, right? And that's even before you've done any printing. Yeah, it. It really is. And it takes forever. Like, you know, people always like to talk about the time component of art making. And it's like, well, like, should I start from like, when I planted the bulb in the ground? Do I start from when I cut the plants? Do I start with like, when I started pressing it? Like, you know, there's like, so all of these cycles to it. Um, and I'll often feel like, man, I haven't made anything lately, but it's because I've like, you know, certain months are just so intensive with like making either that herbarium that I made. Um, that took up so much time last year. Never mind the fact that I had to like drive to Albany every time I wanted to press something. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's like truly a labor of love and you never quite know how they're going to come out. And then like, you know, you could like break them easily or, you know, they like fall apart, taking them off of something. Um, people do often ask me, like, if they see my videos, they're like, well, what do you do with the flowers after? Like, well, I use them again and again and again. Um, and I, I do get like lazy and I'll pull, you know, like I have like the top layers of my flowers and I tend to use those again and again. And then I'll like force myself to like just spread all the flowers across my entire studio once a year and like look through it and like sort them out. Um, but I've never found a method of sorting them that actually works well for me because when I like completely categorize them and try to make them more organized, um, then it just makes me feel really uptight when I'm trying to like pull things out to make compositions. And so I feel like it stifles my, my like creative process as opposed to like helping it. Um, I do try to keep separate like different projects. Like, so for the shaker project, I had specifically um, the plants that I harvested from that garden. Uh, so I had to like keep those separate. So I kind of just like tried to keep the rest of my plants in a separate part of my studio, which my studio is not very big. So that was difficult to do. 
um, to like keep those plants in one area and then keep the like shaker medicinal plants in another area. Um, so I wouldn't like confuse them. And I've done like commissioned works. And like the reason why I don't take on very many commissions is because it is just like so much work. Like if someone has like specific plants that they want in the commission, and then I want to like make sure I'm keeping their plants and flowers separate from everything else I'm doing. Um, and I, I did, um, I did one piece just because it was like the kind of project that I felt like I couldn't say no to. And it was, um, it was a memorial piece for, for someone who, um, their grandmother had died and she had all of these house plants that she absolutely loved. Um, and they really wanted to make something like to honor her life. And so I made, um, works with the actual pressed plants that were her house plants and then like incorporated um like they showed me like pictures of her and they showed me pictures of like her whole house and just like you know her and like all of her favorite colors um and like what she lived with and um so it was a really interesting project just to like feel like there was so much weight on one particular piece because I really wanted it to embody this person who I had never met so I just like had all of the research side of it around as I was working on it and all of the real plants. Um, and like, in a way, like I really did feel like I was just trying to like focus on the person while I was making this work and like allow for those changes to happen. So I made probably five different versions of the piece as I went just because I was like, nope, this isn't quite right. Like, let me keep going from here. Um, and it's just like, you know, such a huge time commitment. And like, I get really invested in each project that I work on. Um, and then, so like those plants, then I actually gave all of the plants um, back to the family when I was done with them. Um, so that was a project where like, you know, I felt like even just linking back to like what my children were saying about the plants, like living forever, like, you know, just having, having this wonderful memory of this person. Um, and then the, the family, um, they, they got the original work. And then we also did a special edition of prints, um, for the various like friends and family. So that was, you know, that was both a fun and meaningful project to work on. Um, and in a way related to the shaker project I was working on, because I really did feel like I was like, trying to like wrap my head around all of these medicinal purposes of the plants and even like think about the lives of the people who are making these gift drawings and even go back and like think about Anna Atkins um, with her like first, you know, coming upon cyanotype through John Herschel and just like being that first, you know, real artist and botanist to, to use the medium. And, you know, I think like my, my background is all in studio art. So, you know, drawing and painting and from sculpture and printmaking and all of these things. So um, like I always said, like when people ask me what medium I would work in, I'd say like pretty much everything besides photography and video. And then I realized like the last few years, so I was like, oh, I guess I accidentally started working in photography. And then like, because of social media, like we're all like film video makers and like I'm on amateur level now. I'm like, all right, forget it. I just work in every medium. Um, and like my, my husband is a photographer and he's like a photographer, like, you know, by training, like classical, like dark room, black and white, like 
he has like a huge collection of cameras and like all the gear. Um, and I am just like, well, I don't use cameras in that way. That's like not my medium. Um, but then I like told him I didn't mean to like steal like his one medium, but then I kind of did. And do you feel like, I mean, it's kind of a bit off topic, but like with the ability for you to put yourself out on social media, do you think that helps you have more ownership of your art career? Yeah. You know, I think um, social media is wonderful in so many ways. And so I really just try to focus on the parts of it that I enjoy and just block out the parts of it that I'm like, oh, don't really like that part of it very much. Um, but yeah, I think that, um, you know, social media is so misleading just in, like with what you see or what like people imagine other people doing. Um, and I think it's like, uh, it, it's a little complicated in the sense of like, like when you talked about like ownership. So like, if you have a certain thing that you work on and you're like, okay, like, it's not like I think that one needs to be innovative, but there is a certain level of like doing something your own way. And then it does feel like with social media, people just feel like they have complete carte blanche, like to openly make something as close to your work as they possibly can without ever giving reference to your work. And then another person comes along and then they're copying that person's work, having no idea it came to you. And then that person copied, like, you know, it's just like something is like in the air and it's fine and it happens. But I do think that like social media really, really like makes that so glaring. Um, and that, you know, that it doesn't need to be like one person doing one particular thing. Um, I love the community and I love how, you know, we share knowledge and um, get inspired by each other. Um, I just wish sometimes it wasn't like quite so crass with like, you know, how people are doing something that's just like, you know, something that could be so, so simple, like, oh, wow, I saw the work of so-and-so and it was wonderful. Like, I think that it's nice to just like give nods to people when they inspire you. Um, but one of the things I really loved about social media is just being able to like to connect with people all over the world in a way that would never have been possible, both from a geographic standpoint um, and just a time standpoint. Like when I lived in New York City, like I would go to openings and support my friends on various projects. But then when we moved up to the Hudson Valley, like I just didn't have the time to get out in that same way. Um, so anything that I can like, you know, do at midnight from the comfort of my own home is amazing. So I love that I can like, you know, communicate with people and see what other people are doing and share my work um, just so easily. Um, and I think that like during the pandemic, it was for sure like my lifeline. Um, and I would try to be like, just find a way to be present to not only post things, but to, you know, send messages back to at least most of the people who messaged me and to, you know, to send real messages to people whose, you know, whose work was meaningful to, to me on there, as opposed to just like hitting that like bot button or like a comment to like really, um, to really communicate with people. Um, and then, you know, I've been doing public art for so long, but I never offered prints of my work. Uh, it was only, it was about a year and a half ago that I started offering prints of my work after so many people had requested. And now every time I send someone a print, you know, I send them like a handwritten card as well. And I'm like, well, letter writing, like I never used to write anyone letters. And now I'm like, I, I mail like, you know, 
at least a hundred cards to people all over the world every year. So it feels nice to like take something like social media, but then also like, you know, actual handwritten card and like have those two things be interconnected. In this time that we have left, it would be good to talk about chemicals and coding. You did mention the paper. Oh, I just use the the classic cyanotype formula. Sometimes I'll, you know, experiment a little bit, but then I'm like, eh, it's fine. It's good enough. I'll stick with it. Um, and I do like, I thought so often, like, Julia, just stick with the same kind of paper, take notes and just do the same thing. But for whatever reason, like, I don't know, like I'm a glutton for punishment. I just like, I love to try new papers. So I'm always trying new papers. Um, and you know, I have like the few books on cyanotype and like then in there I'll see like, Ooh, I've never tried that paper that's in there. Like I should try that one. Um, but my, my general, uh, go-to, I use a lot of arches paper. So both like cold press and hot press also the platine. Um, I use sheets and also rolls. Um, I also like Fabriano and use a few different kinds of that. I, I like Strathmore. Um, for people that are just starting out, I really love um, the Strathmore watercolor paper that comes like in spiral bound sheets. Um, I don't know what it is about that particular paper, but I just find it like so easy to work with, um, forgiving. So that, and it's like much more affordable than the like expensive watercolor sheets. So that's a good one to try. Uh, for my fabric works, I work on both like cotton and linen. Sometimes I work on silk and um, I mostly coat, um, coat those myself, which takes forever and is such a finicky process. Um, I'll like go through cycles with like working on fabric and working in paper. Um, whenever I make like the textile works, um, there's just, they're so impractical. Like they take so long to make, um, the actual materials are really expensive. And then at the end of the day, it's like, well, is it clothing? Is it a wearable cyanotype? Like, you know, what is it? So what do I sell it for if I sell it at all? Um, so yeah, so I'll like, you know, make a big group of those. I'm like, I'm always hoarding like upcycled items. So like anytime if I'm like in a thrift store, Salvation Army, and I see something that's like relatively light colored and like a natural material, I kind of just like buy it and throw it in a pile in my basement to be like, oh, I'm going to cyanotype on that. Um, so I'm teaching um, two different cyanotype workshops this summer. So I think I might like take some of that stash and just use them as like, you know, demo pieces to, to show people. Um, yeah. And for the um, coating of the fabric, I spread them all over my basement to let them dry and make huge messes. And it takes forever to clean everything up. That's my least favorite part of the process. Um, to coat the paper, I generally do it in my attic studio. Um, I also, a few months ago, started renting an annex space um, right on Main Street of like an old commercial building. And that's been really nice just to like have more space to work. Um, and it's, uh, like, it doesn't have any windows and, you know, for so many people that would be a downside, but I actually just wanted a lot of wall space since my attic studio doesn't really have any walls and, um, it's totally dark. So it's essentially a dark room. So I can like lay out really big pieces in there, um, and let them dry. Um, so I like the spaces look kind of new. So I really just made my shaker projects there. Um, and now we'll see um, in the next year or so kind of what, what ends up um, unearthing in there. 
So what are your coating tools? Are you using like foam or do you like a, a brush? Um, I like a brush and I even use like just regular like house painting paint brushes. Um, I have some, you know, that don't have any metal in it and whatever else. I just don't feel like you can scrub into them in the same way. So I like like a brush that I can like really get in there with the bristles. Sometimes I'll do brushes that have like, you know, much more like delicate ends to them. Um, I've also like ruined lots of my nice painting brushes when I want to like just brush in like a particular design. Um, I have just so many brushes. I think like being a painter and like, you know, I paint murals too. So I don't get too fussy about it. I just grab whatever I have and be like, oh, well, that was a mural painting brush. It gets a cyanotype brush now. And so that just happens. And then like, I try to label them like, okay, that's now a cyanotype brush. Don't make another, like, don't make an oil painting with it. Or like, let's try not to do any house painting with that. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't really get caught up on like the technical side in that way. I just use what seems like it works and is handy. Have you always kind of coded on the same method? Like, do you just go back and forth or have you developed something that quicker or anything like that? Because some people, they don't like that part of the process. I I definitely don't like that part of the process. It's like the one thing I was saying that, like, I love how fast, like, certain parts of the cyanotype process are. Um, I had a lot of issues with, like, I coat my paper edge to edge. Like, I find the white border very distracting for my own personal work. Um, but then sometimes like the back of it ends up so saturated with a cyanotype solution that it doesn't like to rinse out. And I was having to like rinse my cyanotypes like for an hour or more. And then I was getting like wash out in other sections. Um, so I just, I like try to be really diligent with getting like the, the cyanotype chemistry, like right, right, right up to the edge but not letting my brush linger too long as to like soak the deckled edges. Um, and then really just like, you know, working it in going one direction, working it in going the other direction. Um, yeah, I'm kind of going from there. And like with the fabric ones, I will generally just like with the big ones, like soak them in a bucket and then wring it all out. Man, it's gone by so fast. I haven't even asked you about your, your painting. Yeah. Just the, um, you're so talented with recreating the, the flowers and and the gold um, images that you do as well with the kind of geometric shapes with the gold, like what um, initiated that for you? Yeah, I, I have like a very longstanding love of like medieval art and like early Renaissance. um, And like, I love the Cloisters Museum in New York City. Um, So there's just so many works that have um, the gold. And I think there's something about like the iconography of them and then also like this very ancient feel to the gold and like kind of celestial feeling between the the blue and the gold combination um and I also just like how because I can use a variety of layers of like opacity and many different hues of gold um I can really just like completely transform a piece so I can some of them I print knowing that these are going to be worked back into extensively with gold and I'll like plan around that. Um, and then other ones, you know, I just have a piece that I thought was going to be something else. And I just, you know, start painting gold into them. Um, and I've even like my one uh, happy discovery was that when I paint with like Prussian blue, the Prussian blue is a staining pigment. 
So that will sit really deep into the paper, whereas the gold, it really sits on top. So if I'm doing something with gold and like, I've just gone totally wild with it. And then was like, this doesn't work. I don't like it. I can just take the prints and soak it again and just soak all the gold off of it um, and start over. And like, but all of the blue details um, will still remain because I would have painted those with a staining pigment as opposed to, you know, like the coating pigment. Um, so I've even had works that like started off as gold and then I decided not to work any gold into them and I soaked all the gold off or they were gold and I just like didn't like a particular thing that I did with them. Um, I try to really give myself the freedom to like make mistakes and experiment all the time. Um, and I think, you know, that gets harder and harder just having like deadlines and exhibitions and commissions and like all of these things that are like, this is actually my job. This is like how I pay my mortgage. So how do I still, you know, stay true to what I want to do with it? Um, so finding these things that like allow me to experiment. So both like making, you know, trying to make like variations of the same piece so I can like work into them and not worry about it, like a failure with it, or even like soaking pieces off again. Um, and like, you know, of course, like the blue will be a little bit affected, but not in the same, like that's the same degree. So that was nice. It's just like, it was like, I was like, oh, let me just test it and see if it works. And when it did work, I was so thrilled to just like watch those layers come off and then be able to like go back into them. Um, but yeah, the, the painting for me is like, is just like hand in hand. Like I find that like, like none of my cyanotypes, including the ones that are blue and white, they're all painted. So I've, I've worked into all of them. Sometimes I just do a monochrome and other times I'm doing them, you know, full color. Um, and like, I really love that part of it. And that to me is like, like where my mind really goes to, it's never feels like quite enough for me on my own works before they've been painted. Wow. Yeah. I think some people would just kind of like, you know, be horrified if they knew that they would be possibly spending all this time on a painting and then, and then soaking the color out of it. Horrified is a strong word, but I mean, like it's, time invested I think as artists for some reason that's a really um maybe it's when we had time poor but um that just can you talk about that a little bit like in terms of that decision to to start over I guess that's something that Cyanotype offers but is does it feel good when you're washing it out oh I mean it it doesn't it doesn't it it, it is still hard for me it's like I know what you're saying it's like the like you know, we invest so much of ourselves in both like, you know, the fact that time is money and time is scarce. Um, and, but like, I just know when something's not working, it's just not working. And like, you know, whatever I like post publicly is such a small fraction of the work that I'm actually making. Um, you know, I'm always working on multiple pieces at the same time. And I'm like, I don't know if it's just like, that's the way my mind works, but I can focus so much better if I'm working on multiple things at the same time. And then I have all of these various like stacks of like levels of completion. And sometimes I will just sit down and then like a few days start to finish, do one thing, but that's pretty rare. I will generally like work on something and then be really frustrated with it and put it away or like work on something and think it's awful and put it away. 
And then I'll take it back out. And I'll be like, I don't like, I don't know why Julia of like two months ago was so critical of this one. Like this one's great. Um, and then other times I'll take it back out and be like, yeah, this just like, this sucks. It's not working well. I really like, I just need to find a way to like do something else to it. Um, so I have a pile that like get turned into collages or like even ones that like I let my kids like cut up and do whatever it's do. So I, I have ones that are like so incredibly precious to me. And then other ones that are like waiting to be fixed. And then other ones that are just completely in the pile of like going to turn into an installation or going to like, you know, be turned into like kid art. So it really like runs the gamut of what, um, of what I'm going to do with it and what I've already done to it. It's kind of along the lines of, you know, like, um, just turn off that perfectionist, you know, it's like, yeah. And I think like, I do, I suffer from like, you know, the desire for perfection. And I think it's like, it's both, um, an attribute and a downside is like, you know, I really, I just want the vision to come across in it. And it's rarely, it does where it's like the entire time I'm working on something. I'm like, yes, this is going well. Yes, this is great. And like, I can, you know, sometimes in like two or three days, a piece will come out and I'll just be like really satisfied with it. And other times I can spend weeks or months on a piece and still at the end be like, this just did not turn out. So it's like, it's often the pieces that take less time. Um, but somehow I was like more focused into it that I am more satisfied with than the ones that like take longer. So what's next for you in terms of an actual project that you've booked or your aspirations and what do you hope to explore with your work over the next year or so? Um, so one of the things that we talked about was like just kind of the magic of cyanotype and I am absolutely hooked on that. Um, but one medium that I have always wanted to work in, I'm finally getting to, and it's glass. And I really feel like glass is also just such a magical medium. Um, and I'm doing, I'm working on my first um, permanent piece uh, in New York City that was commissioned by Percent for Art. And it was something that like I've wanted to do for two decades. So I'm just thrilled um, to get to work with like a really amazing fabricator on this and like go back and forth. Um, I'm still deciding on the exact fabricator. I've got two, two finalists. Um, I'm working on samples with them now. And I will actually get to go for a week to the workshop while it's being made and like physically be part of that project. So that um, I'm super happy about, it's going to be installed in um, 2024. So I can't share any images of it until 2024, which is so hard because I'm like super, super excited about that project. Um, and um, I'm working on um, a new series of cyanotypes, like always, um, kind of like for a few different places. Um, I have three galleries that I show with in the United States. So um, Carrie Haddad Gallery in Hudson, New York. Um, I just had a show with them recently. And I also show with Kenise Barnes Fine Art in Kent, Connecticut, um, and Garvey Simon in, um, in New York City. Um, so I'm working on various projects with those three. Um, I also have some other projects in the works that I'm not allowed to talk about yet. And I'm doing um, a solo exhibition, which will be my first solo show anywhere in Europe um, with the Julian Sander Gallery in um, Cologne, Germany. Um, and that one has been delayed a few times just because I really want to at least spend a week or so, um, do some site specific parts to it. 
um, and just be part of the process. So we're hoping for spring 2023 um, for that show. And um, it's interesting because that, that gallery is primarily a photography gallery. So this is like definitely my foray into like, here is like quasi photo based works. Um, and Julian Sander is the um, great grandson of the German photographer August Sander and really like knows all of the historic side. So it's really interesting just to show um, cyanotype based works in a gallery that specializes in these like, you know, historic photographic processes. So I teach, I teach at Marist College, I teach drawing and painting there and color theory. Um, and I have two kids. So it's just like, you know, constantly juggling various things. I always find your content quite calming. And so you, you what you present, you know, on Instagram and things like that, it, it seems like you manage all this stuff quite well. So at least you're putting that out <laughs> in the world. Thank you. And I think for me, like, you know, it's like, oh, okay, well, you could just not make as much art and you'd be less busy or like you could do more parenting and you'd be less busy, but I would be so much less fulfilled. And when I'm less fulfilled, I'm cranky. Like, you know, like if I don't get studio time, I'm not pleasant to be around. If I have studio time, I am pleasant to be around for the most part. Um, so, you know, I think that like just having a really supportive spouse who is an artist and understands that like that balance is just, you know, super important. So shout out to Sean Hammerly, my husband, um, because I think that like, you know, being married to another artist and a creative person and also parenting together, like there's just so much like teamwork that needs to happen to really like to make things like to make all of the puzzle pieces fit together um did you have anything else you wanted to talk about um I enjoyed listening to your episodes so far and I just think this is such a wonderful thing that you know you're doing for the cyanotype community um just to like listen to all of these different voices and hear both you know ideas and technical sides so thank you for putting this out into the world and I do definitely think the cyanotype is having a huge moment, which makes me nervous in the sense of it. Like, I'm like, it's not a trend. It's an amazing medium. It's not a trend. It's been around. So like, I think that like, you know, with having a podcast and just having all of these like various groups um, dedicated to cyanotype, it can just like kind of have a presence and I'm hoping a long lasting one.